20 years ago now, a couple came to us from a, another church and really from another kind of church background, they, and they attended the adult Sunday school class. Uh, I think this would have been in the days of George Ludke, for those of you who remember him. Uh, and this couple, they were, they were uh, surprised that people occasionally in the, in the class discussion, they referred to Bible verses without quoting them or, or looking them up. And, they, and others responded, you know, seeming to know what they said. You know, somebody would say, well, if that's, if that's so, what do you do with Hebrews 6, 4 through 6? Or, you know, or that sounds like a Roman 7 situation to me or something, something like that. And the people, other people seemed to know what it, what it was and they were astonished about that and they told me I, I was glad to hear it I thought that's a good that's a good impression to make really uh, but that's exactly how I thought about the you asked for it question for today here's here's how it came to me what's so bad about numbers 27 through 13 that led to Deuteronomy 32 48 through 52 <laughs> and I was proud as I read that I have to I'll have to make two confessions. One, I was proud of myself for knowing what that was about. I was thought <laughs> And then here's the second confession. I also had to look it up to make sure. <laughs> and then when I when I read the passage I said, "Yes, I was right. I was right. I got it. Knowledge puffs up, the scripture warns, but it feels good." <laughs> Hence the biblical warning, but that's another sermon. Different sermon. So, so here are the passages, and when you're reminded of them, you, you know, you've, like I said before, you've probably had the same question or something like it. Here's Numbers chapter 20, verse, starting with verse 7. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord and he commanded them. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land, land that I have given to them, that I've given them. These are the waters of Mirabah, where the people of Israel quarrel with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Here's Deuteronomy 32. You, see, you know the setting, I, I'm sure. The people are, you know, they're out in the wilderness and they're, they're, they don't have any water and this is how God gives water. Deuteronomy 32, just, uh, just five verses here. Um, about 40 years later. That very day the Lord spoke to Moses. Go up this mountain of the Abiram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession, and die on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people. 
as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go in, not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. So here's the issue, of course. God told Moses to tell the rock to yield its, speak to the rock, tell the rock to yield its water. That's, a, that's how it's translated in English standard, to yield its water. Instead, Moses gave a short, angry speech, right? And he struck the rock twice with his staff. And the Lord nevertheless graciously made the rock gush with water. But he was not happy with how Moses handled the situation. And Moses certainly did not strictly follow the Lord's command. And the punishment for this sin was that he would not get to enter the promised land. Uh, He'd be able to get right up to it. He'd be able to go up on a mountain and see it. That's what this picture is on the bulletin. But he would not set foot in it. And he would die before the nation took the land that God had given them. In other words, really, he would not get to personally experience really the culmination of his life's work, of what his life was all about. And, it, and, the, and the question is, you know, it seems... Or here's the idea, it seems kind of harsh. It seems like a a heavy, heavy punishment for striking the rock. And, and 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 it does to me too. Especially when you consider the people he was tasked with leading. Uh, The New Testament commands us, this is Hebrews 13, Obey your leaders and submit to them. The context is the church. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Well, the children of Israel, you know, as they're called, that Moses led were the polar opposite of the kind of people who would be a joy to lead. They, they, uh, they were exactly the kind that would inspire groaning in a leader, and groan Moses did. They made Moses miserable. At, at one point, they frustrated him so badly, Moses asked the Lord just to take him, just kill me, just kill me, before these people do. You know, he, was, he, he does, Numbers chapter 11, he asked God to take him. And has there ever, when you read it, has there ever been a group of people more resentful for having been set free from their slavery? <laughs> How many times do they complain? You know, you read through, you read through the, the Pentateuch, you know, the first five books. How many times do they, they say some variation? Why didn't you just leave us alone in our slavery where we had some, at least the food was decent, you know, at least, at least we had food and water, we had, you know, why did you do this to us? Have you brought us out here to die? 
You know, when you, when you read these books, it's like that's the only song they know. And they sing it all the time. You remember the verse we looked at last week? There's no food and we loathe this miserable food. Remember that? And after all they had seen, after all they had seen from the hand of God through his servant Moses, and so you, when you read this, well, yeah, Moses got frustrated. <laughs> and sure, Moses got angry. Who wouldn't? God was angry with him more than once. And so why wouldn't Moses be angry, frustrated? And so this, this judgment on Moses seems harsh, and yet we know that the judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. So says Psalm 19.9, Revelation 6.7. For example, we could find quite a number more that say that the judgments of the Lord are true, they're righteous altogether. So, so what gives? How is this judgment on Moses just and righteous altogether? And... And in a way, or at least part of my answer is going to be, I don't know. But that is a point, too, that should be taken to heart. And, And here's what I mean. When God judges, like he does, or he disciplines, you know, he he says what is going to happen because of the sin... It's not God who's on trial. It's, it's man. Uh, God's judgment on sin is the true measure of sin. Uh, it's the correct, when, when God speaks to it, it's the correct assessment of its weight. And, and it isn't difficult to see that man's assessment of the seriousness of, of particular sins can be seriously flawed. We, we can all look back in history and recognize the sins of previous generations as absolutely heinous, but which at the, at the time seemed uh, you know, like minor things or, or uh, perhaps even positive goods, you know, that... They called good, called evil good. Now, but whether it's eugenics of the 20th century, you know, or the slavery of the 18th and 19th centuries, or the burning at people at the stake for really relatively minor differences in doctrine before that, or blood sports in the arena for entertainment in the centuries before that, and on and on and on, we can all look back at previous generations and say, how did you think that was allowable or even how could you even think that was good and it it, at least ought to invite some kind of humble self-reflection on what sins we wink at or accept or tolerate or even celebrate in our own time and then we know that sinners like ourselves are practically addicted to self-justification and rationalizations 
in a pinch, we're all at least tempted to point out that what we did isn't nearly as bad as what we might have done or not nearly as bad as what others have done. I mean, who hasn't? Who hasn't at some point in their lives not said, who hasn't said, uh, it's not as if I, and fill in the blank. <laughs> and then there's, uh, you know, Look at what look what you made me do. Uh, favorite game of married people and criminals everywhere. Look what you made me do. And grievances against others can absolutely blind us to our own sins. I've uh, I've I've mentioned this fellow before, but I can think of no more striking example than this condemned criminal named Thomas. Grasso, like back in the 90s. He, I won't go through what he did, but he just cruelly, just cruelly murdered two elderly people on two separate occasions. First one to steal $12 and a, and a television set, and the next time to steal a Social Security check. And, a, and on death row, before his last... He, he ordered this elaborate meal. I won't go through the menu, but it's a, a big elaborate meal, which included a can of SpaghettiOs for old time's sake. You know what he ate when he was a kid. Just one more time, a can of SpaghettiOs, and they, they bring him out for, to execute him. He was lethal injection. And his last words before he met his maker and judge, <laughs> last words. Do you have anything to say? I did not get my SpaghettiOs. I got spaghetti. I want the press to know this. Now, that's an extreme and this brazy. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> that's just an extreme example, but but it's extreme. What that's extreme, you know, we do a little of that. We probably wouldn't let ourselves, you know, to that extreme, but we, we do a little of that. And sin is not only the things that we do that violate God's good and perfect will. Sin also affects how we view those things, how we see those things that we do or have done. And in some cases, we may think it's not so bad as all that. In other cases, we may give, to borrow some biblical language, give hearty approval to that which God absolutely disapproves of. And so I think the most important thing to remember when we talk about an issue like God's harsh judgment, whether we're talking about Moses or whether we're talking about hell itself, is that God is holy and we are not in our sin. Uh, God is not a child of his generation who shares at least somewhat its biases and its prejudices, its warped sense of right and wrong. God does not bend morality to kind of justify himself like we are prone to do. And so when God judgments, his judgment is right and true whether it strikes us that way or not. You know, he knows the heart of every man better than we know our own hearts. 
And ultimately, here this has to be part of the answer. It's not the whole answer. But ultimately, we must bow the knee to him whose judgments are just and altogether righteous. As far as the particulars go with Moses, I can offer you three things to consider that may impact the way you think about it. The first two I'm just going to mention in passing. It can be just kind of just hit them real quick and then spend the balance of the time we have to the third because I think that's where the strongest answer lies and it's very applicable to us. Here's the first thing. God's self-revelation to people always increases accountability before God and Moses experienced God's self-revelation at a level that few men in history could, you know, ever had. Uh, Adam, maybe. Uh, Jesus Christ is certainly more, you know, he's a category by himself, but he's certainly more in tune with God, God the Father than, than Moses. But, but after that, it might have to come Moses. Uh, Moses, the greatest of the prophets, because God spoke to him face to face as one friend speaks to another. In other words, it didn't come to him in dreams and visions and... It, it, he spoke with God face to face. Exodus 33, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And revelation from God always increases accountability before God. Always does. That's how it works. That's how it works with us too. Luke 12, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. In the context, we're not talking about money or resources. We're talking about truth. Knowledge, true knowledge from God, of whom much is given, much will be required. Last week in our Greenfield Bible study, we're, we're going through John. Last week we came uh, to where Jesus tells Pilate, He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So in other words, he says to Pilate, You know, you're acting in ignorance. You're, you're going to sin because you are going to order the crucifixion of God's Son. But the greater sin belongs to he who delivered me over to Caiaphas, you know, Annas, the religious leadership. Because they're, they're he, Jesus says in effect to Pilate, they're the ones manipulating you. They should know better. They have the scriptures that testify to them that I'm the Messiah, Jesus says. They've seen, they've seen the miracles. They've seen the evidence that, that I am who I say I am, Jesus says. And their sin is greater because their knowledge of God is greater. Same sin, but greater responsibility belongs to them who delivered Jesus over to Pilate. Revelation from God always carries accountability before God, increases accountability. And so this would be one reason why Moses... You know, when maybe this, this judgment on Moses seems so harsh, he, is that what he, he had seen is the knowledge he has, the revelation he has from God. The, the second thing, I'll only just mention it, and it really, I hesitate to even do it, but I'm going to. It isn't ready for prime time, and this is my prime time. My telling you is prime time for me. <laughs> and I haven't developed it, and it could be that in trying to develop it, it could come up dry, you know, like a 
Like you scientist types, you know, hypothesis, you have a hypothesis, you start pursuing it and then just say, no, no, give it up. It could be that with this, but Moses is a type of Christ. And that seems undeniable. You know, the, uh, I use the word type in the theological sense, which is that he's a divinely intended foreshadowing of Christ. Moses was a deliverer uh, whom an evil king tried to kill in infancy, just like Jesus. Moses left his place in royalty to take his place among the people. You know, he left, the, he left royalty to become one of the people, just like Jesus, just like Christ. Moses' life purpose was to deliver his people from slavery, just like Christ. And I wonder if Moses' delay at entering the land, if you don't, you know, like he may have at the Mount of Transfiguration, but he's going to. If that didn't count for it, he's still going to. Moses' delay at entering the land, I wonder if it's not parallel to the delay, to the delay between Christ's first coming and his second. You know, the real and full culmination of his work, the f full flowering of the kingdom that will come at his second advent, his return. And so maybe this is a larger purpose of God of Moses not entering the promised land during his natural lifetime. You, you can kind of take that for what it's worth, and, and like I say, I, maybe it's not worth much. I, uh, many years ago, I told my friend that led me to Christ that my seminary education, my theological education, gave me the confidence to kind of stake out a position sometimes if I thought the Bible warranted it without having to have the support of some, you know, big hitters in the Christian world, you know, didn't... I could take a position if I thought it was right and feel confident about it, even if I didn't have Calvin or Luther or uh, Spurgeon or Chafer or Ryrie to back me up. And he said, he said to me, he said, well, that's nice. That's nice for you. He said, but let me tell you what your education didn't do for me. It did not give me the confidence to go out on that limb with you. So... <laughs> I'm not going to go sit with you on that limb. So you might, you might leave me out there on that Moses is a type of Christ and his not entering the land is, is, uh, you know, is parallel to Jesus, you know, to, the, to the space between Jesus' first and second comings. But uh, there's a lot, I, I, there's much more to justify a third aspect of this uh, explanation for what happened to Moses. Moses, and here it is. Take the last... 12 minutes or so on this. Moses had a lifelong problem with anger. And this was not Moses' first outburst. This thing of striking the rock wasn't the first time. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, and all these scriptures are on the back of the bulletin. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now admittedly, the passage doesn't say anything directly about Moses' anger, but it seems pretty clear to me, I think to you too, he's filled with righteous indignation, right? He's he's filled with with anger and then he takes it a, takes it an extra step and he looks this way and that and he kills this Egyptian buries him in a shallow grave 
Seems like an outburst of anger to me. Lots of people saw uh, terrible things happening. It seems like Moses might be alone in, in uh, having lashed out in such a way as far as we know. And this seems a clue to Moses' personality, doesn't it? His disposition. There's, in the New Testament, an elder, one of the requirements, an elder must not be, this First Timothy 3, must not be uh, violent, must not be violent, but uh, gentle. King James says at that point, not a striker. And an elder in your church should not be a striker. Well, that's a qualification Moses would have had trouble with. In the approval process for uh, being a prospective elder, Moses would have to say something. Well, you know, just to be clear, there was a time when I saw someone beating one of my kinsmen, so I struck him and killed him and buried him in a shallow grave. I didn't plot it out, just on the spur of the moment. You just think that, that, that I did it. As a youth, he could, maybe you could say, is a youthful indiscretion. I was 40. About 40. Fast forward another 40 years. Exodus chapter 11. God had told Moses to repeatedly warn Pharaoh to let the people go, uh, threatening Egypt with plagues if he would not. But God also told Moses that he would harden Pharaoh's heart and, and Pharaoh would not let the people go. He told them that. And in this way, God was going to glorify himself over Egypt and its false gods. So when... When uh, Moses delivers the warning about the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, Exodus 11:8 says, "And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. He's furious." Well, what God had already told him that Pharaoh is not going to let the people go. He knew what was going to happen. And the Bible doesn't comment on uh, Moses' anger in this case, but just, I'm just file it away as something that tells us something about Moses' personality. Fast forward another couple of months to Moses coming down from Mount Sinai, carrying the two tablets with the Ten Commandments engraved on them. Exodus 32. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back. They were written, the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Now Moses, he's coming down, and he has in his, in his, uh, in his arms the most precious manuscripts, if we can use that word, that have ever existed. And he know, you know, the writing of God, God's handwriting <laughs> on these tablets that God hewed out of the stone. And Moses knew what he had. He's the caretaker of them. Verse 19, Exodus 32, And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf, you know the backstory, the, the, you know the, the uh, calf, the golden calf that they were worshiping. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, it says, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. 
Now, I don't, you can't blame Moses for being angry here. And this is righteous anger. God's angry too. But what he did with those tablets in the fury of the moment. And God didn't tell him to do that beforehand. And God didn't approve of it later. In fact, when the rune, the shattered tablets were replaced, God tells Moses, this time you hew the stones. <laughs> you hew the tablets out and I'll write on them again. That's what, I already, I already cut two. <laughs> That's what it says, Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words which, that were on the first tablets. And then, it, you know what the next phrase is? Which you broke. That's what it says. You remember the ones, the ones you broke. It kind of invites a joke, doesn't it? You know, the, the people uh, uh, broke the commandment concerning idolatry. Moses broke all ten at one time. And the New American Standard says shattered. The, the, the tablets you shattered. And I'm just saying, as we read through the life of Moses in the Scriptures, are we not gaining a little insight into the, in the issues between Moses and the Lord? It's like, Moses, you're my chosen servant. I speak to you as a man speaks to his friend. But I get this feeling. But get a grip <laughs> on this anger of yours. And so when we come to the episode where Moses strikes the rock, instead of simply speaking to, the Lord, to, to it as the Lord had said, that didn't come out of nowhere. You know, there's a context for that of many years. And it wasn't exactly out of character for Moses to lash out like that. It was just like Moses to do something like this. And this was not an aspect of Moses' personality that the Lord admired, approved of. And in the end, God finally disciplines Moses. And there's a consequence. You'll see the land, but you won't enter it. What a, what a bitter pill. And... And I'll say this, I, I won't take too much time on this, but I'm not quite sure Moses ever fully owned his responsibility in it. I'm not sure. Deuteronomy, which is Mo, Moses rehearsing, you know, the history and rehearsing the law. Deuteronomy 137, Moses says, even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you also shall not go in there. Really, that's how you put it? He was angry with me on your account. And it, and it sounds like he's saying, the Lord was so angry with you, it even spilled over onto me. Longer explanation. A little bit of, look what you made me do, isn't it? <laughs> A longer explanation, Deuteronomy 3. And I pleaded with the Lord. This is after the fact. I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, Oh Lord, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. He asked that he would see it, and he'd go over and see it. 
But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, this is Moses saying, the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. And I just wonder about that. You know, the Lord, this is what he says. The Lord was angry with me because of you. When I read, I think, I can't believe you just said that. Is that how you want to put it, really? Well, you check the record. It's in the two passages. I'll pick out a couple of verses. Verse 12, Numbers 20. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, so it has something to do with the people, Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Deuteronomy 32, the Lord tells Moses he's not going to the land. Here's verse 51. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people, again, the people have something to do with it, of Israel, at the waters of Mirabakadish in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. It did have something to do with the people, but it was because Moses had failed to treat God as holy right there in front of everybody. He was not careful to do what God Almighty had told him to do, and his his actions did not reflect a faith in God as he'd revealed himself to Moses to the people. God characterizes his lashing out in anger as ultimately a a failure of faith. He did not treat God as holy as he is and as God has revealed himself. And it came about because Moses was simply, why did he have this? Why did it happen? Once again, he's overwhelmed, he's overcome by his own anger. When he gets angry, there's nothing else. There's nothing else. There's just his anger that has to be satisfied. That has to be vented. Hence our application. God's judgments are just and chronic disobedience invites his discipline. Moses' besetting sin. I think we see it. I think it's, it's clear. His besetting sin was this anger that could boil over and in the moment everything else counted as nothing even the command of God that he received from God is face to face he knew what God told him to do he just didn't do it why because he was so angry <laughs> and, and and for you you know it could be, you know, this besetting sin, this chronic problem, this something that God doesn't like, He doesn't approve of, something we have to get beyond. For you, it could be anger, just like it is with Moses, or it could be lust, or it could be resentment and unwillingness to forgive. It could be laziness, could be lying, could be greed, pride, you know, unbelief. You know, sin is a many-splendored thing, isn't it? But whatever it is, 
It must be overcome because you, like Moses, are one of God's chosen. It must be overcome because your, your destiny is a sainthood, sanctification, holiness, and God will, it must be overcome, and God will overcome it, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. But you and I have a lot to do with what it will take. I think here's what we get from Moses. And this episode, you know, this particular uh, you know, thing about Moses and the discipline that came out. Why not let God's command be enough? Why not ask God to take the harmful thing from you before he has to pull it out of you? Why not take the easy way God offers rather than the hard way God will employ if it is necessary? And why not stop justifying it uh, stop rationalizing it. Stop blaming others. I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think we see it, Moses. God was angry with me because of you. I don't want to be unfair to him, but I think that comes through. Why not stop it? <laughs> Confess, repent while he is giving, you know, to borrow from Revelation, while he is giving time for you to do so. The Lord is patient toward you. He was patient with Moses, wasn't he? I think so. <laughs> he's even more patient with the people, but he's patient with Moses too. The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He wants to bless. He wants to save. He wants to give life and give it abundantly. So, so here's Moses. This is kind of the anti-lesson for it. Take it, receive it, walk in it, uh, come back to it when you've strayed, give it to him. But this, uh, this uh, whatever the parallel is to Moses' anger in your own life, ask him to help you rid yourself of it. With your cooperation, <laughs> before, he, before he has to pull it out of you like that. Well, let's pray. Lord, every child of yours can identify what it is about ourselves that you want to be different, even if we wouldn't tell another soul. You know, and we know. And Lord, like Moses, even people who have done great work and have many virtues like Moses can also have great personal struggles with sin. Thank you for your long-suffering patience with us. Thank you for your spirit that strives with us so patiently, so graciously. And may none of us in this place find the limits of your patience, but repent of our sins while you give time to do so. May we each take full advantage of the forgiveness that's offered us in Christ and pursue our sanctification in him with all our strength, all our mind, all our heart. We believe, Lord. We believe, and we ask you to help our unbelief. Increase the faith of the believing in this place. 
Let the beginnings of faith be kindled in the unbelieving but open and willing heart that they might be saved from sin and death, even as you are saving all who are in Christ through faith in him. We pray in the name of the Savior and Judge of all, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.